intro, okay? Welcome to the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast, where we feature unscripted interviews with graduates of the United States Military Academy class of 1991. The Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast with your host, Jamie Schleck, starts now. Okay, welcome everybody to the Old Grad Podcast. This is uh, episode 27 with our esteemed classmate, uh, doctor and retired Lieutenant Colonel, uh, Sam Yinks from Company F3. Uh, and so Sam, we actually have audio and video this time, which is uh, a unique uh, addition and um, hopefully it's gonna work okay. I'm technically trying to get this thing um, connected. So Sam, you there? Yeah, I am. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So. I, like this is our first time doing it. We got Skype going, got audio and video, and I'm pretty sure everybody can hear us. I'm getting some good louds and clears. So that's that's good. So my uh, technology finally worked out. I've been getting I've been getting hazed by people for uh, being all screwed up on the uh, switchboard here, but maybe I got it down. This, this is impressive. This is coming across the Atlantic and across the equator. So let's so so Sam, where are you? To give us the give us the rundown. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, at my home, uh, or or more properly, uh, your your um, your spare bedroom, because this this is our spare bedroom, and uh, this is this is government housing. So, um, Jamie, when you come and visit, or anybody else, uh, get on a plane, come to Lusaka. This this is the this is the space that you own. Um, this is our spare bedroom and kind of office in our house here in Lusaka. I'll, I'll give you a view out the out the window. At some point, I'm sure some small girls will run by there. Uh, so I'm, I'm in Lusaka, Zambia. Um, you know, and I was thinking, I, I took a bike ride this morning. Uh, I go about two, maybe just a mile and a half down down a paved road, and then I turn off into uh, um, actually through a, a Chinese development. Um, and then, and then back into it, it's, it's like you're going back a hundred years because um, it's it's farmland, and you know people scraping a a bare bare living out of this red, basically you know chopped up rock. It's it's hardly even soil, uh, and um, you know women carrying a baby on their back. Uh, you know, women in many cases barely, barely girls, uh, carrying a baby on their back. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, that's, that's my, that's my recreation. That's my escape. I, I take a bike ride down the road and, um, I go bird watching. What kind of bike? You got? Like a mountain bike kind of bike? Oh, yeah. It's an ancient, um, you know, now, now mountain bikes are, are super high tech. Mine, mine's 20 years old, but it still, uh, works fine for me. Oh, I hear somebody in the background. Let's get it. Let's get a visual. <laughs> You have, you have four girls, possible. right? Four daughters, you said, right? Yeah, that's correct. Oh, there we go. Look at this. We got somebody on a on a on a little training wheels in the backyard. Got the trampoline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All all the you know. So so I was saying, you know, this is this is um, government leased housing, um, and you know, thanks to everybody who pays taxes um, for this amazing existence. I mean, 
I'm, I'm doing a, I'm doing a job here. I'm paid and it's, it's not an easy job exactly, but, um, our, our life is just wonderful here. And, and in particular, the, the, um, social environment and, and the, and the schools for the girls. Uh, and, and I'm just going to say it right now. Here, here's the, what we got there. That's, that's our, that's our tiny Annie. Um, it's a hundred percent why we, why we took this opportunity. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great place for, for girls to, for, you know, children this age. Um, Zambia is a fairly stable place. You, I don't know if you can see all, all the way to our wall there, um, with the, with the concertina wire. I mean, that is classic straight out of, uh, um, you know, engineering obstacle, uh, construction concertina wire that's that's what's on top of everybody's wall here um you know so is there, there, is, there, there, is, there the, a, is, the, is there much of a concern of safety though i mean like you said it's a pretty yeah yeah so so crime is is serious but um like like many parts of the world and and definitely almost all of southern africa most most crime is the poor robbing the poor and um our you know that that and and we have a you know I'll, I'll I'll see if technology will really work and just um give give a tour uh of of the house and out the front door. Are you on um, a phone or a computer? There's a computer over over the internet. Uh, cool. Provided by Huawei, the the Chinese internet system. Oh, we should say hello to our Chinese friends then. So hello, yes, hello, exactly. Beijing. And, hello. and, and hello, all our friends. Yeah. This is our front door, and you can see our our, our guard, okay. guard shack there. Uh, um, we, we got, we got uh, like orange trees there, or something mm-hmm. like, like some kind of tropical uh, tropical tree there, or something. You got? Oh yeah, you know. So so I mean, this this is we're we're in um, you know subtropical. We're we're just south of DRC. You know, we're just south of the, the rainforest. Um. And, and anything grows in Zambia. It's mango season. Uh, just trucks and trucks and trucks of, of mangoes. You just drive down the road and everybody's got their, um, you know, it's kind of a family business. You drive, you pick all the mangoes off your own tree and you drive into Lusaka and just park by the side of the road for three, four days until you, you've sold a, you know, pick up load of, of mangoes and they are just delicious. Um, I mean, so so there aren't really uh, coconut palms, but there are palms. Um, definitely any fruit, any fruit that you can imagine. Of course, there are bananas everywhere. Um, uh, we we have a papaya tree uh, in our yard. Um, this is a new house, so we don't have um, real, you know, old trees. But but many homes here have huge trees, you know, sixty feet tall with a massive canopy and a lot of them are, are fruit trees and um you know beautiful place uh and so so i was riding my bike to, today and you know I, I i do that one for recreation and because i love watching the birds because um the the bird life here is just just gorgeous beautiful um but it also you know is, it, it's a, a reality check Some, sometimes i go through what what here we call a compound um i don't know if you're familiar with uh the, the so-called townships of, uh, of South Africa, you know, and those, those are the places that back in the apartheid days, um, that was 
that was, you know, literally demarcated. And, and, you know, if, if you didn't have a face like this, you know, cross the line, that, that was never the case in Zambia. There definitely was, you know, um, a clear separation in terms of economic power between white and black. Um, but it was never apartheid, but, but what, what happened here was kind of an organic, um, separation, economic separation where, um, you, you would have, uh, you know, colonial, mainly British people's homes. And then, you know, they would, uh, want, um, domestic help. And so basically a shanty town would, would just crop up across the street and grow as people came in from, from, um, the countryside to, to look for jobs. And then eventually these, these things became, um, effectively zoned and, and they, 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 they almost all have, um, decent sewage, fairly few have running water, but they almost all have electricity and, and they're, they're, the plots are incredibly tiny, um, but they are legally, um, owned, sold, deeded, uh, tiny little properties, but these are referred to as compounds. And, you know, it's definitely, um, uh, it's stark living. So, so anyway, I ride my bike through, through the compound sometimes and, you know, always end up, um, in this, in this forest where there are lots of gorgeous birds, but that's, that's my opportunity to just take a time out and, and think about things. So point being, I was thinking, you know, to, I, I don't know how to, give anybody a verbal picture of, of Zambia, it's just impossible. So, you know, I, I would love to hear, you know, what are the questions? Give me, give me 10 true, false, multiple choice questions that you, what did you ever want to know about Zambia that you don't know? So <laughs> you put me on the spot here. I'll let, let some people populate it into the feed as well. But I actually did um, a little bit of research because I wanted to not be a complete knucklehead on this, on this call. I was listening to the, um, there's actually a podcast, the Zambian uh, Embassy podcast. I listened to the our yeah. um, uh, to our ambassador talking about the issues of of Zambia and and aid and you know I guess TB is a big is a big uh, problem there. Which is I mean, you work for the Center for Disease Control, right? So you are a uh, CDC employee working through the embassy, right? That's that's your role there. 100%. Yeah, I am embassy staff. I, I still I still have you know uh, about. Twice a year, I'm the duty officer. Really? Um, you have a so boy yeah. at the CQ? Absolutely. Midnight Cowboy? You know, so, Midnight Cowboy in Zambia? Yeah, so here it's not so bad. Here it's not so bad. You don't get, um, you know, too much craziness. But, but um, yeah, I'm on call um, for, for a week, a couple couple times a year. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm embassy staff, but um, employed by, by CDC. And my job, effectively, you know, to not... To, to be to be perfectly frank, um, I'm in charge of basically everything that happens in a in a laboratory in Zambia that's funded by the U.S. government. So this this program PEPFAR, and you know, shout out to to George W. George and, W. And really Bush. Cool. Yeah, they, they yeah. basically. I mean, this is this is the unsung thing about the about the Bush administration, oh, yeah. GW. Oh yeah. Because there was an entire generation of Africans that would have yeah. been wiped out, and and so. That would be terrible, but what would be even worse would be all the kids growing up without parents in Africa. We saved yeah. like a gazillion people. Yeah, which and, and that is and that is absolutely true. That is a fact, um, and I love that. You know, I have the ability to do that. I'm kind of the representative. I'm basically Santa Claus. You know, I run around and and 
give out, you know, gifts. But, you know, I, I just, I want everybody to know, especially, you know, this group of people listening, that ain't why I'm here. I mean, I, I'll tell you, truthfully, as I said, the, the number one reason I'm here is it's a great, great place for, for kids to grow up. But in terms of my job, um, yes, it feels great to, to save babies from, from HIV, um, you know, be, be a humanitarian. But, but the, the implication of, of that scenario that you're talking about um, is chaos, war, and, um, you know, the most uh, utilitarian issue of all is lack of business opportunity. There, there are big business opportunities here, and, and they won't be here if, you know, there's, there's chaos. No, nobody 20 to, to, to 40 um, taking care of kids. So, so, you know, my job, and, and the ambassador said it really well in, in his recent, you know, kind of frankly lecture to, to the Zambian government. Yeah, we, we want to help. We are happy to help. We are generous people. Um, but stop the damn corruption um, and, and know that this, this is not just a gift. There, there's, you know, there's, a, there's an expectation that you, that you use it well. And also, you know, we're, we're not here just as, as pure altruistic gift givers. There, there's a, you know, there, there's, there's something else there. And, well, yeah, and, I, mean, and I think about that every day. That's, that's arguably, I mean, that's the whole reason for all of our foreign policy. I mean, it, be, be, I mean, it is about, it is about national interest, but um, Scott Clemens didn't have one question. How safe is it for tourists to visit? Like, is there a tourist market in Zambia? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the unknown and, and Zambians say it all the time. This is the real Africa. You know, you, you go to Kenya or, or definitely South Africa. I mean, South Africa is totally fake. Um, you know, tourism, if, if you're talking, uh, you know, safari tourism, um, Zambia is, is completely natural still and is absolutely safe. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit brutal to, to say it, but, um, you know, we, you, you hear about, uh, what do you, what do you call it? Death, death by, you know, suicide by cop or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that can happen in the U S but that is definitely, you, you, you pull out a knife in front of somebody here and the cops do not say a word and gun you down. That's it. Really? That is what, the are there handguns? Is, is there a handgun? Like what, what's the deal with uh, no handguns, right? No, no, Absolutely. no weapon. Absolutely illegal. You get a license and then they are hard to come by for, for hunting. Mm-hmm. That's all you can have is just a hunting rifle then basically for hunting. You can't have a handgun. Yeah. You can't have any kind of other kind of other. Yeah. No, I think, I think you can, you can get them if you, cause I, I think, I think there are um, indoor ranges and, and things like that here, but um, you know, for, for the average person, not running a business, uh, it's just not worth dealing with it um to to you know try to get licensed so effectively there are no there are no guns mm. in so, so so walk me back through like the more recent history you've been there for like about two years now right a little less than two years yeah and yeah. what what brought you to this role because prior prior to this you were working at purdue university right it, yeah so yeah which which was so wonderful man i love that job um that was the first time i was ever really working in veterinary medicine purely i was running um the the purdue which is the indiana state animal disease diagnostic lab um which was a real joy but um we, we were at kind of basically 
in our home base in, in Indianapolis. Um, and I was commuting an hour and a half a day, um, up to West Lafayette and Katie, my wife, um, has always worked for family health international. Well, for the last 10 years or so for a long time, she's worked for that specific NGO and has always worked in that kind of role for an NGO. And, and she's at, at this moment, she's, she's in Delhi. Um, she, because Delhi is a place where, um, you can have a meeting with Afghans, not in Afghanistan. And they're, um, they're writing a proposal for, um, a, a major maternal child health, um, initiative. And so she, her, her travel is mainly to Afghanistan. Um, but, uh, she works on several other projects and so she's, she's traveling, 30, 40%. There, there have been a few years where she's been, been gone, um, six months of the year. Wow. And that's and, it's just know, we, all you and the four girls and, and you're a cadre of, uh, support people. Exactly. And you know, when, when we were in Indianapolis, uh, there, there was one time she was gone for three weeks and we literally had a list of 20, um, you know, girls and women and, and both of our moms, um, you know, friends down the street, you know, a, a, a rotation. And, you know, my whole mind was, you know, consumed by, by managing literally 20 on that one occasion, um, you know, babysitters and help and parents and couldn't take it. So, so here we are. And, um, you know, one of, one of the benefits, I, I don't know, I don't know quite honestly if, if many state department people or, or, or others try to keep this a secret, but, you know, I, I don't, uh, we're we're here because we, we have our Thai nanny with us and it was easy to get her a visa here. Um, we, we had our Thai nanny with us for a year um, in, in Indianapolis, but, but then you, you can't renew a visa for, for somebody um, not to get into all the, the details of who can get a visa and who can't, but, and we have a, um, a Zambian nanny, a cook cleaner, a driver, gardener, um, and you know, yeah, I mean, we're kind of living a fairly aristocratic life truthfully. And thanks again to, to all taxpayers, my classmates, um, first and foremost among them, because, because our, our life here is very comfortable. Um, and, and that's, that's why I'm here. I'm not here to save Zambian babies from HIV. Again, that is a, that is a profound joy to be able to, to, to do that. But that ain't the number one reason. The number one reason is that, um, this, this gives us the ability with me being a crotchety mean 50 year old man who, you know, I don't move as fast as I used to. And, and my wife, um, her job, uh, with extensive travel, we were not good parents in Indianapolis, couldn't handle it. So, so this, <laughs> this saved us from that. Interesting. And, and it gives you the flexibility because she's got such a globetrotting job in order to have the kind of support that you need. And then you're able to do, do good in the world, work for CDC and be a, you know, for, kind of projection of our national interest there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, a question from Greg uh, Mogo uh, uh, about the Ebola situation. What, what, uh, what was that like? Well, I guess you came by, you came right after it, right on the heels of the last Ebola outbreak, right? Yeah. So, so, um, well, the West Af Africa Ebola outbreak, um, when, when that one happened, I was in, I was in Bangkok, um, had nothing to do with that. Um, very, very peripheral to that. Um, here, um, so it's right across 
our border, right across our northern border, um, where, where there were uh, at, at one point hundreds of cases a month, and it was looking like the, the, the trend was, was increasing, and there was one instance where um, cases were found across an international border in Uganda. So, so there was serious concern that it, that it might go further. It never made it to the capital of, of DRC. And, um, you know, so that was a relief. It never made it to the big um, city in, in DRC where there, there is a lot of movement across the Zambian border. So um, it, it, it ended up settling down uh, pretty much around about two months ago. It really sort of settled down. But um, my, my job here in Zambia has been to um, prepare the, the, the ministry to, to be able to diagnose internally. Um, because, you know, there, there was, there was a case in not, not, a, not a case of Ebola, but, um, a, a suspect case of Ebola, um, in Tanzania. And they, you know, like, like many governments, um, when, when you, when you don't know the answer, you, you say the, um, you know, the most politically convenient answer. No, absolutely. It was not Ebola, which, which, which everybody knew that, that they could not definitively determine. And you know, so my job here in Zambia is to enable the Zambian government to to truly be able to say honestly yes or no. Yes, I'm, I'm sad to announce we we had an imported case of Ebola. Uh, the patient is quarantined, um, not doing well, but our prayers are with them. Uh, but but they know. And then you know, if, if you have a, a, a plausible suspect case that in fact turns out not to be Ebola, you you can definitively say that, and everybody can trust you that that you you are. are you know, telling the truth, you know, so that, that ended up being my job here. I never was directly involved, um, in the, uh, in the DRC outbreak and they remained confined to DRC, thankfully. You know, in prepping I'm saying DRC and for, for everybody, that's, that's Democratic Republic of Congo. In prepping for this podcast, again, I was listening to the Zambian embassy, uh, po- uh, you know, podcast and they had one of your colleagues from CDC on, uh, it was a woman, um, and she was an epidemiologist and she's speaking about, the importance of trying to drive behavior change. And like so much of this is about trust, right? Yeah. And so to your point, like, you know, once you, once you yeah. come out with something and you, and you violate that trust, nothing else is going to be believed afterwards. Like in terms of a, a crisis, you know, in terms yeah. of how to manage the population and population health. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we're here with that, with that issue um, with, with HIV, um, you know, we're, we're, we're still, you know, not, not to demean, anyone um but uh we we are still at the level of of germ theory you know fundamental acceptance of this is a virus and this is what we know about it and this is what you can do and going to your church and get slapped in the head is not going to cure you of, of hiv and unfortunately that is one of the aspects of um you know continued problems with with hiv here so that, that reminds me Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated right. by the so, HIV. So that, reminds me, that reminds me of a of an issue that that I, I I reflect on from from our from our army upbringing. You know, it's almost like the army religion. You, you know the phrase "gotta love it." Mm-hmm. You know, so so I, I am going to quiz you. What does it mean to you? Gotta love it. That's just kind of like yeah. a, it's a way to dismiss something like oh, gotta love it. Like you know, hey, I you know. Another Sammy on Saturday morning or some other, you know, bullshit inspection or, you know, we got to, 
shroud everything all the maps and everything because you know the north koreans are going to come in and do inspections of of all of our facilities and then it gets canceled the last minute you know gotta love it that, that's my experience using that i i i will encourage everybody to take that phrase to the next level and and the next level of it for me is that you literally make up your mind that you do love it you, you delude yourself you convince yourself you lie to yourself and then eventually you believe it that you truly do love it. And, and why, why that's relevant to, to what I'm talking about with Zambia and like you were talking about behavior change in, in DRC, you know, you, and, and there are those people that, that really get on my nerves, frankly, about, Oh, I, I love, I love this, this, this culture. It's so, you know, profound and, 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 you know, fascinating the culture and, but some of the stuff is just stupid and, and, you know, facts are facts and, you know, hugging and, you know, sharing bodily fluids with, with a, a person who died of an obvious hemorrhagic fever, that is stupid. And you should say that that is stupid. But at the same time, you got to love it. And you got to make up your mind that, that you embrace it. You know, and I, I had to go through that here in Zambia. And I've had to go through that in many places where I worked, um, where, where you just convince yourself that, that this, this is, this is, this is actually interesting that this is, you, you just make up your mind. You got to love it. And I had to get over that in, in Zambia because there are many challenges. Here, I'll, give, I'll give you an example. You know, corruption is rife here. And I deal with, I personally deal with corruption effectively every day. And, and, it's, and you, you, you have to make a decision. Um, am I going to confront, you know, try to, try to gather some evidence or something and, and get some individual punished in, in some way or, or sideline that person or, you know, where do I draw the line on, on corruption? And, and one of the things that, that helped me um, is by, by free chance, I heard this Zambian phrase. And the phrase was, if you get a seat at the table, you eat. And Take a second to, you know, try try to visualize that. You right. Know, so if like there's a, an opportunity, like a, if there's an opportunity to be to be corrupt, just do it. Right? Is that is that what you're saying? Got to do it. Absolutely. And if chance. you don't, and if you don't, you are stupid, and you are not thinking of your friends and your family mm. because that's how corruption works. Corruption is not just I grab everything I can. I'm grabbing and I'm passing back, passing back. I'm sitting at the table, but my family, my, my clan, my tribe, literally, you know, we, we, we talk those, those phrases in, in the U S you know, my tribe or whatever here, it's literally a tribe as, yeah. as you may have read in your research. That's no longer, by, that. by the way, the, 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 I'm a, I'm on the cutting edge of what is PC by working in the nonprofit industry. I'm getting called out on stuff all the time by my, by my very sort of um, idealistic colleagues it is no longer PC to use the word tribe referring to something oh, other yes. than you, you can't do that now. You, like, so to your I'm point, so relieved. <laughs> I'm so relieved to hear that. I, you know, I'm about, I'm about three months behind. I get, I get, you know, caught up a little bit by, by my 11 year old, you know, on what's cool to say and stuff, but I'm, I'm pretty far behind. So I'm relieved about that one. Mm, mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess we take it for granted, but, and I think you, we're going to get to this. I want to hear all about your, you know, on the pre-call you said like you never really understood the concept of honor, the importance of honor until you were like, you know, a field grade officer in, in the military in in, in the army. Right. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, that is absolutely true. I mean, I was, I was one of the classics that, um, you know, and for, for, for those of our classmates who, who don't know that, that such people exist, um, you know, sit down. But, you know, I was one of those, I was a letter of the law, followed the letter of the law. What do I got to do to not get in trouble? It wasn't because I was really committed. And I, I just love and adore um, those of our classmates. I truly honor them um, who, who came into West Point with, with the absolute, you know, commitment. And, you know, just it was, it was all black and white to them. There was no gray. Well, it was all gray to me. I question everything. I doubt everything. I'm, you know, not, um, there's, there's, there's no ultimate, uh, you know, principle. For for me, it's all a utilitarian logical process. And so, you know, a group says, okay, our, our consensus together is, um, you know, this, this is our objective as a, a group. So, you know, I mean, that group can be as big as you want it to be. It can be a nation. It can be the whole world. And, you know, to, to get to that objective, you've got to do X, Y, and Z. And, and one of those things is you got to be able to trust each other. And, and that, you know, that is the fundamental utilitarian, for me, um, ultimate rationale uh, for, for the honor code. And, and so, you know, I never, I, I still today don't, don't, really embrace the, the, the notion of, of, you know, duty on our country or, um, will not lie, cheat or steal as, as if it's, you know, written somewhere in the cosmos that those are absolutes. And, and, you know, if you, if you don't measure up to those absolutes, then, then you're, you, you know, you're not a good person. I, I, I don't even embrace that, but I really get it now. And, you know, one of one of a dozen things that over, over 20 years, uh, you know, finally churned around in my brain. And I just, I think back to our experience at West Point and I just, I'm so, so lucky and I don't deserve it. I'll, I'll tell you, you I, I just, I just heard her. So she made me think of it. I, I named, I insisted on naming one of our twins Grace because, you know, that's, that's basically my, my constant, almost constant, um, sense of, of my life. I just, yep. That's her. That's Grace. Yeah. Goes, that's Grace. Hi, Grace. <laughs> you know, she, she's my, she's my living reminder of, um, how just inappropriately lucky I am. And West Point, you know, was, was the, the first thing. I mean, it was probably, it was probably the, you, you know what I mean? A sliding door. You know, it was probably the number one sliding door in my life where, where if I had gone, you know, this way instead of that way, I, I don't, I, I think you can pretty much imagine the worst and, and it could have been me. So hold on. We, we have to go back to, I want, I want to speak the arc of the podcast. I want to get like, I want to finish talking about like the here and now. I want to go back to the pre-West yeah. point, hear all about Sam growing yeah. up on the farm in Indiana, right? Is where you from? Is is in India? Yeah. yeah. So I want to go back, yeah. and then we can we can talk about that. But by the way, how old is Grace? How how old is she? She's six. And is she? She's, she's, she's a six twin? and a half. Yeah, and her twin is her twin is about six point three five. Okay. But she's six and a half, and that's the difference between the two of them. Uh, yeah. they they are just fascinating kids. And how um, old are the other two? Yeah, so I have an eleven year old and a four year old. 
Wow. Good for you. That's awesome. Yeah. So, yes, that, that is, uh, once again, you know, thank you. Thank you, Zambia. Thank you, U.S. government. Well, how- thank you all the way back to West Point because, you know, all that is part of how, you know, I could get a job like this. You said your wife's name is, is it Katie, you said? Yeah. Katie. So what was it like when Katie was pregnant? Was she still like globetrotting around doing like meeting with Afghan, you know, villagers trying to run, you know, um, all kinds of international NGO stuff when she's pregnant with twins? She, she took our, she took our 11 year old to Afghanistan once. Really? Wow. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, yes. I mean, we're, I mean, both of us are really sort of weirdly connected and committed to, to Afghanistan. Um, I, I really loved hearing from Kenny Mintz um, about his experiences. And I would, I would be um, very surprised if very many of our classmates or anybody could say those kind of similar experiences about Iraq. Um, I didn't spend that much time in Iraq, but um, I feel like I got to know the people there uh, fairly well. And, you know, there, there are a few countries and societies that I don't ever want to have anything to do with again. Um, and then there's Afghanistan and a couple of others, Thailand, Mongolia, where, you know, the people are just sincere people. They're just completely victims in, in many cases of, of circumstances, especially great power, you know, rivalries that, that they just got caught up in. Um, and they themselves, I mean, now, now let me, let me, Speaking of PC, I'm not going to act like I'm, I, I think it's cool and you know honorable or whatever um, that uh, you know, traditional Afghan principles include um, girls not going to school and forced marriage and all that. Um, but just as as a people, you just you just have a feeling about about some groups of people, and and you just you, you feel a connection and, and and a love for them and. and um, you know, like Ken Mintz and, and many others that I know who have really spent a lot of time with Af- Afghans. Um, yeah, you said you were impressed, you were impressed by his, um, how he was sitting on the pillows, how, like he, like, like embraced yeah. the whole, like, uh, yeah, it, 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 impressed and also not surprised at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we have so many dear friends, uh, you know, Afghans as, as well as, um, Americans, Europeans, Indians, on and on that, um, you know, you, you, you spend a few weeks in Afghanistan, if, if you're able to get to know the people, if you're not, you know, just trapped on Bagram or, you know, calf, especially, uh, then, um, how, how many, how many, you can't help it. how many Americans do you have that you work with on a day-to-day basis versus, uh, international folks, you know, Zambians or, uh, you know, Europeans or, Chinese or whomever, like what, what's your, like your circle of colleagues and your circle of friends, what do they, what do they look like? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, so my, my boss is a, is a Sudanese American South. He, he was, you know, rescued as a kid from, from South Sudan. All, all his family were dead. Um, you know, one, one key matriarch of his family, um, died of HIV and, um, um, he got a ticket somehow to, to the U S so he's, He's American, you know, he doesn't even really remember South Sudan, but Sudanese American. Um, <clears throat> my, my boss is Zambian. So, so it's, um, uh, the, the director is Sudanese American. My boss is Zambian. Um, my, uh, 
you know, kind of peer on, on the organization chart is, is Zambian. Um, there are four or five other Americans kind of, you know, at a similar level in the organogram as, as me. And then, you know, there, there's the embassy staff, but we don't interact with them um, that much. But, you know, where, where you really kind of have your community is, is other parents um, at, at school. And um, so our 11-year-old goes to the American International School. Um, she, uh, she had the amazing opportunity to, to start to learn Mandarin Chinese and, and has continued in that um, with a tutor. And, and that, by the way, is my only Chinese friend here, <laughs> is, is my, my oldest daughter's tutor. Other than that, you don't really work with Chinese exactly. But, um, so, but, but she has many uh, Chinese classmates at American International School. Uh, there, there are South Africans, um, British, uh, and then our, our little three are at the French school because, uh, you know, that's, that's their opportunity for, for a language immersion experience and there that's that's sort of the uh the the aristocrat kids school the french all the ambassadors uh yeah the french school so count the ambassadors kids that go there italy uh, france itself of, of course the the british the, the the british call call their ambassador the high commissioner mm-hmm. the british high, high commissioner's kids go there um there are six or eight so you know, our, our little three go to go to school with all the ambassadors' kids. So I'm picturing like you know, you guys have like these social parties, like these cocktail. Everybody shows up like in these kind of like kind of debonair outfits, and, and like you know, like everybody's talking about their like I like like I'm picturing like what I see like in the movies or something, like some like some central stairway coming down, and people walk in. There's a doctor and Doctor Ying sting, and you walk in. Is that, is that what it's like? No, it's a little simpler than that. You know, this is Zambia. Uh, you know, so, so the French school is, and I don't know if anybody wants to be assigned here. And, you know, like uh, from from the, the French, what do they call it? Home affairs or whatever, British home affairs. Maybe they don't even want to be here. Uh, it's, it's a very simple place. And, you know, our kids, they, they come over for dinner and our kids go over there for dinner. And they're just, you know, the British ambassador is Nick and his wife is Debbie. Um, even even our our embassy staff here, um, you know, it's, it's a very you know, you, you, the, the State Department has a hierarchy like um, like the military to to some extent. You, there are certain lines you don't cross, but um, but you know, very, our ambassador and everybody goes by the first name. Is this somewhere with other countries where the ambassador is actually a political appointee? But then you've got your state employees that are like the ones that have been there for you know fifteen years or twenty years. Um, the latter is is accurate, but um, no, this ambassador is a is a long term State Department non political appointee. Mm-hmm. Probably because yeah, yeah, I'm not going to get political here, but yeah, so it makes sense. So, so we have, uh, you know, and and the um, and and and, uh, and and the other the other ambassadors are from other countries are not political appointees. Those are all like long long standing. Like th- those guys get it. Those guys and gals get it. Right? They're not like you know, trying to, um, you know, uh, yeah. mix things up at all. Yeah. And, and, and they're here to sell stuff, you know, um, effectively every embassy here, um, has, has a donor program, you know, a development program or whatever. Um, but fundamentally they're, they're here to sell stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
they're 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 practical people i i, I really like them i i had not had that much uh, you know i've been in in all of our overseas assignments um even with dod you're you're in in a certain sense embassy staff i was embassy staff in in cairo and bangkok um and sort of in in afghanistan too but um I didn't have that much interaction with, with them. I didn't get to know the, the embassy staff there, but here, here we work very closely with them because the, the program that, you know, I represent effectively is almost the entire um, aid package uh, for, for the embassy. So it's, it's, it's almost, it, it literally is 80% of what the embassy does is, is the PEPFAR program. So I've gotten to know them very well. And I, I think they're fabulous. I think they're, wonderful representatives of america right and that's kind of the lasting impact that we've had in africa was you know saving like an entire generation of people that would have died of aids yeah so yeah, did- I, I wish i could you know put on a gopro and, and go down my road because go go half mile down my road and there's this massive cemetery and it's all overgrown and then you look at the you look at the the you know broken up gravestones in there and you know a lot of them are you know, 1970 to 1995, 1975 to 1995. You know, the late 90s was when people were just dying in waves. And and now, you know, you, you have total access to um, life-saving medicine. And, and that is courtesy of the American people. And especially and, George and, W. Bush. In particular, yeah. You know, honestly, I would say mainly Laura is, is the fact. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it was her visit. Um, to hear her, her visit, seeing, you know, rooms and rooms full of orphans, uh, many of which had HIV themselves and, you know, weren't going to live very long at that, at that time. Um, and taking that message back to him, that that's what, you know, truthfully, I think everybody acknowledges it's really her actions that, that got this program funded. So what, so t- the transmission rate, was it all about sex? Is that the main sort of, I mean, it's not like sexual sex. It's, here, here in Zambia, it is 99% heterosexual sex. And it's primarily, um, it's, it's a, it's a very gut wrenching, um, fact of, um, that it's, uh, men roughly 20 to 30, 20 to 40, uh, with girls, 12 to 18 oh, is, is basically the, the cycle of transmission here that is um, hard to, hard to interrupt. Mm. So, uh, so you are a doctor of veterinary medicine and a PhD in yeah. epidemiology or something yeah. like a totally yeah. low, like a, just a, you know, low achiever, right? Sort of like a slacker uh, <laughs> academically. Well, well, what I'll say about that though is, you know, the army put me through that. Um, you know, I'll tell that story a little bit because I, I got to bring in uh, one of our classmates who is a committed anti-Facebook, um, you know, and I, I, I applaud those uh, who can maintain that. Um, so Mike Ellis, Mike Ellis and I, uh, we, we both um, had the opportunity to choose our post um, and we, we went to Fort Lewis and then got assigned to uh, second ACR. Uh, and you know, I wasn't a good soldier. Um, I, you know, I knew I didn't really belong there, but I, but I love the army. Um, you know, loved what it's about. Uh, just 
I couldn't really be a good platoon leader. <laughs> and, um, I, I, you know, that's, that's not the case for Mike, by the way, Mike, Michael was, was a fabulous platoon leader. I, I don't know if, I don't know if anybody keeps list of this kind of stuff, but, um, he's one of our silver star winners. Mm. Um, he, uh, as a, as a physician in Iraq, as a physician, um, he, he, he was awarded the silver star. Wow. Yeah. I did not know that. So somebody, uh, yeah. And I, he'd probably be a little irritated that, that I'm saying that. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm comfortable saying that is because I know he doesn't use Facebook. But anyway, so, so Mike and I uh, were, were at Lewis, and then the, the unit got moved to Fort Polk. And in, in, in all that process, and, and, and for him, I think it truly was partly the fact that, that we weren't in a premier unit. For me, that, that, was, that was not really the case. Um, I just realized that I, I couldn't be a, you know, frankly successful good um combat arms officer so so we 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 decided to to try to find a different path and um he had been an english major and i was a computer science major i don't know i never asked him i don't know why he was an english major but i was a computer science major just because it was easy um it was fun and easy i didn't i didn't By know way, what i was I, gonna do I was, I was a computer science major it was not easy for me <laughs> that's okay <laughs> well okay I didn't have, I didn't have a long-term objective. Yeah. There wasn't some kind of, you know, I'm committed to like, like many of our classmates, you know, that are committed to, um, you know, dealing with cybersecurity and so forth. I, I didn't have any vision like that. I just, I just wanted to graduate. I didn't know where I was going, but, but I finally figured out where I was going and it's a little bit embarrassing, but, um, <laughs> the, the thing, the catalyst for me, it was this, was this stupid book, the hot zone. Um, and you, you may or may not know that in that book, there were army veterinarians dealing with, um, what looked, what looked like it might be a serious, um, human susceptible, um, Ebola outbreak in, in the suburbs of DC. It, it was in, um, it was in a, you know, research monkeys, mm-hmm. uh, turned out to be a virus that, um, only affected monkeys and not humans, but there was no way to tell based on the, the techniques that they had available at the time. Anyway, so I read that book. I was like, wow, I, I could be in the army and I could do this. Um, and, and so, and Mike, I think was thinking along similar lines and he decided he wanted to go to medical school. Neither of us had the prerequisite. So we were going to night school and, um, and then we, we were at Fort Polk and, and we were taking organic chemistry. Fort, wait, and, how'd you go from the, Fort Lewis to Fort Polk? Did you get, did you get signed there? Yeah, they should have moved. Oh, that yeah. sucks. So like you graduate like, like the top of our class. Anything. Hold on. You graduate the top of our class. You get to put. You get to pick a a, a premium post, Fort Lewis, and bam, yeah. they move you to Fort Lewis. Yeah. See, that's that's the gotta love it moment. Yeah. Gotta love it. That's the army. Yeah. Gotta love it. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. That is where I learned to accept that phrase. No, no, in, at Fort Polk, I never, I never got to that uh, level of then. Um, I still resent that. I, I still feel like so the army put me through veterinary school and a PhD. And I've been to all kinds of, you know, fabulous places on the Army dime, but they still have not, still does not balance out from sending me to Fort Polk. Nothing can make up for that. <laughs> I'll never forgive them for, for that, you know, brutal. Yeah. So, so there we were at Fort Polk, though. And um, uh, we, we decided we needed a change of direction in, in our lives, both, you know, weirdly, because um, uh, we were not a couple. Just want to clarify that. Uh, 
but uh had you know the kind of the same um you know thinking that that we needed to do something different and, and we both needed organic chemistry and so we we did we did organic chemistry on the weekends at northwestern louisiana state university up in the you know i don't know please fill the armpit i don't even know what natchitoches is um and and you know managed to get through that and then um, he got accepted to medical school he went to case western um i went to uh back back home to P- purdue for, for vet school and then phd so hold, yeah, hold I mean, on what is how does the army why does the army need veterinarians anymore I mean, we don't have like a uh, cavalry with horses what's the what's the rationale for vets in the army so i you know it it's interesting if if you know what what's where did my cynicism begin did it begin at west point or i don't know i but, can't remember there's a know, little bit is it an element of cynicism at west point i recall because you and i got, i remember i remember you and i talking a few times you always had a healthy degree so. but so, you know i think but sure, i think it's the gotta love it cynicism and there, there's like there's actually an yeah. element of optimism yeah. beneath the cynicism yeah 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 you know appreciation of um hey let's let's just make the best of this thing so so here's the fact of, of veterinarians in the army so you know go back in time to, to 1925 1930 and, and you know you can picture Patton. remember remember some was it, was it the movie Patton when when he was trying to convince the army to mechanize and um you know that was that was his thing of course and and so around about 1930 1935 um writings on the wall the army is going to mechanize you know, horses, that was, that was then the, the, the future is, you know, tracks and wheels. And, and there were, you know, effectively veterinarians. There, there were active duty members functioning as veterinarians. Many of them, their, their training was, was literally farrier. You know, they were, they were the people that put shoes on horses. Um, but of course they had medical skills for, um, you know, taking care of horses too. And they, they said, Oh shit. Now what? Hey, you know what? I, I, I'm the best person that you could find to make sure that the food chain is not going to get all the soldiers sick. I'm not making this up. I'm totally not making this up, Jamie. Those guys that were taking care of horses in order to save their job invented this, this food safety role for themselves. Seriously. And so that's, that's what, that was you know, the kept, that's how you kept the the um the unit alive or kept the veterinarians with a with a role in the army was was food safety. Yeah, food safety, food safety. And then then the next big change um, was our was our and this, this is a this is a dirty stain in our history, um, but but we need to you know own it. We need we need to be fully trans. We need to own it. Um, then the the next phase was offensive biological weapons development at Fort Detrick. Fort Detrick, Maryland was where, um, where the first bacteria um, were, were literally packed into a 155 round so that they could be, you know, used as an offensive biological weapon. And so that, because, of course, um, you know, the studies to, to weaponize those, those things were, were done in animals, um, veterinarians were involved in that, and, and so there, there, there developed this um, kind of tradition of, of veterinarians being involved in our infectious disease research, and that, you know, leads you straight to me, 
where now we have six um, overseas research labs. Three of them are Navy. The Navy labs are in um, Siganella, um, Lima, Peru, and uh, Singapore. And the Army labs are Bangkok, Nairobi, and uh, Tbilisi, Georgia. And and you know we do we do we do very meaningful, valuable public health um, surveillance and and um, vaccine development, diagnostics development, all kinds of stuff like that at uh, at those six overseas labs. But it all began with with guys you know not wanting to lose their job as as we mechanized, and then the offensive biological weapons development program, and that's why there are veterinarians in the army. Mm. Perverse incentives. Sometimes they really get people to do some dumb things. Um, I've seen that in homelessness for sure. I mean, the, the uh, operators of these grant and per diem shelters are keeping veterans homeless longer, and they don't want to see them leave the shelter because it's gonna, they're going to lose their, their per diem income. And so they're actually like holding people back. It's, it's unbelievable. So funny, anyway, not funny, but um, well, interesting. So, so, so the army put you, so you, so you got, you got, let, let's just talk about your army career and we'll go back to West Point at the end. So you got out of the army for a little bit of time to go to vet school, but they paid for it. Right. So you're, you went in there as like a captain yeah. or a major or something or what, what happened? Were you, were you active duty the whole time? I, I had gotten promoted. Yeah, I had gotten promoted to captain um, before I left to go to, to veterinary school. And then, no, I was, I was, you know, I had a, an army status. Um, Did you have a company in, in veterinary school? Did you stick around and have a company command? No, 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 no I was, I was assistant S3 or something right. uh, when I left as, as, a, as a very junior captain. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I left. I knew I wasn't going to be a good commander. I sure wasn't going to be a good staff officer. Um, anyway, leaving that aside. Um, so, so I, I was a second lieutenant. I, I, I was like medical service corps reservist and, you know, did, did uh, JDTs and all that kind of stuff during, during vet school. But then, then on, on graduation from vet school, you, you're magically a captain, no matter what your prior record was. And then, um, and then I was assigned to Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in the DC suburbs. And then uh, Cairo, Egypt, and then two years in Afghanistan. Then I actually went to Fort Detrick um, to, it's called the U.S. Army uh, U.S. Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Disease, and um, you know that was that was that's our Ebola lab, and uh, that that was when I was 22, and I was realizing that I, I wasn't going to be a you know useful soldier, trying to find you know some other purpose in my life. Um, reading about the the Army veterinarians at, at Dietrich, that was like my dream, but. Once, once I had been around the block a little bit and ended up at DC, I didn't want to be there. And I, I asked my commander, uh, I told my commander in our first meeting that I wanted to go back overseas and he, he got me back out as quick as he could. And um, so we went to Bangkok. And Were you um, there during a breakout of H1N1 uh, or H1N5, whatever it was, H1N5 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, so that's, that's interesting. You're, 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 merging uh two two major events one one was uh, actually a purely veterinary event the h5n1 um thing that happened from 2003 to kind of went a little quiescent around about 2008 and then h1n1 uh was a serious well you know it, it was serious it was, it was serious risk um uh, but that's a, that's a human uh, you know it was technically a pandemic strain 
pandemic strain is we, we define it as anything that's different enough that um, prior vaccines would not be expected to protect you at all. Mm-hmm. That was technically a pandemic. It was, it was a very mild pandemic. That was 2009 to, I mean, that strain is still circulating now, in, in fact, but um, 2009, 10. And, uh, you know, those, those, are, those are some good stories. So, you know, H, H5N1 um, started in Southeast Asia. Basically, it started in China. Um, and then it ended up really um, causing serious problems in Thailand, Vietnam. And then um, about uh, mid-2005, it started, you know, a sudden wave of expansion uh, through, through Central Asia. And, and that's where it started to pop up in places that, that we were working. Um, and you were there. Number three. You were so there then, right? The name of the unit. Yeah, yeah. And I went to six or eight uh, different countries, um, either, you know, directly because they had a bunch of dead birds and or dead people. And, and they were like, what is this? Um, or, or it was, you know, helping them to um, deal with the kind of after effects of, of an outbreak, even, even though they knew what it was. So, so it was, so Namor 3 worked throughout the Middle East. In fact, it, it was an amazing institution. Um, it was the WHO reference laboratory. The DOD la- it was a DOD laboratory in Cairo, Egypt. It just pulled out of Cairo last year. It had been there from 1946 through the 67 or whenever that was, conflict, 73 conflict, on and on and on, um, when we didn't even have diplomatic relations with Egypt, and that thing was still there. And um, it was the WHO reference lab. So it worked throughout the Middle East. And then uh, <clears throat> after the breakup of the Soviet Union, so, so, you know, the phenomenon with that was that there were these, whatever it is, 15 or so publics, and they all got all of their healthcare support and, you know, support of that system d- direct from Moscow. And then when the, the Soviet Union break, broke up, all of a sudden there were these countries and huge populations of people with no, um, no infectious disease control system whatsoever. And so number three, actually, uh, we were working in, in 10 or 12 former Soviet republics. So all throughout Central Asia. So this H5N1 um, you know, kind of wave of infection went through Central Asia, Kazakhstan, um, Uzbekistan. And then all of a sudden it was in Europe. And people were really freaking out. Uh, didn't know. Uh, so, so there had been, in, in Southeast Asia, there had been, you know, hundreds of, of human cases. But no... No, no, not even a single instance of, um, you know, real definitive, everybody could believe it, human to human transmission. Um, it's, it's subsequently been, been shown that uh, pretty minor mutations in, in that virus would have led to that. So our worries at the time were, were not just, you know, chicken little worries, no pun intended. Um, but, uh, um, it, it, you know, it turned out it never, it never happened, but, but we didn't know that, you know, in chickens, it, it's like Ebola. It's like the Ebola of chickens in, in a, I don't know if you have any idea what this is, but a broiler barn, you know, that's, that's, they're, they're from tiny little chicks to about six weeks to, you know, as much as three months when, when they're, you know, the, the kind of the classic meat chicken. H5N1 in a barn like that. And they're just all, they're just all 
you know, their, their, their comb and their waddles is what it's called. They just turn black mm. dead in days and it's, they're all dead. And so that, you know, <laughs> and then the, the, the real possibility that, 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 that it could mutate such that it, um, you know, would, would, involved human to human transmission was pretty scary. So at that time, just, just there, there were got infected and, and, you know, the, the infection, the human, the chicken, the human infection, you kind of have to do something stupid. Um, but, but of those that got infected, about half of them died. So when this is going on, like, you know, you're there on behalf of the army evaluating the potential for this thing to mutate into a pandemic, human to human contact, a human to human, like, devastating kind of effect how does this circulate back up to the actual um you know the commands like the paycom commander or socom like are you briefing those guys say here's the deal sir like we are like a couple days away from like this thing mutating the wrong way and we got to get all of our you know got to get all of our people inoculated or whatever how how does that work what what's the army's sort of like threat posture about that stuff that is a fascinating fascinating question and you know when you see this kind of stuff from the inside here, here again, you got to love it. Um, how it would really happen effectively. And, 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 you know, the irony of, of the fact that I'm working for CDC now <laughs> is, is pretty amazing because um, those, those six overseas labs, they actually work more closely with CDC than, than they do with the, the COCOM. We, we worked, you know, when I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, that kind of information would go straight to CENTCOM, of course. But um, if I was working in Kazakhstan or whatever, well, Kazakhstan might have been part of UCOM. I don't even know. Um, but, but you know, say where, where's one where, like, like, like we responded to an outbreak in Yemen. And, and the, the information from, from that um, outbreak uh, went to WHO and then to CDC. And then and, and on, on Fort Detrick, there is this, I don't know what it's called now, but it was the National Center for um, Disease Intelligence or something like that. Um, you know, they're they're like monitoring the news and they're monitoring what WHO says and they're monitoring what CDC says. Our our own, you know, our own people. Yeah. Department. So like somewhere, somewhere, in this intel report that we got from all these different three-letter uh, um, agencies at the very, very base of that is one of our own green suitors that created this thing. And went through all this. That's interesting. Gotta love it. Yeah, gotta love it. Speak. So, uh, uh, another sort of inside scoop kind of thing. You, you mentioned Fort Detrick. Um, you work at the CDC. The the anthrax that got out after nine eleven, and ended up like you know creating this. Was that just some crazy ass scientist? In is that what's the what is the conventional wisdom here? What happened? Crazy, crazy, stupid, nut, total nut job. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me. I mean, you, you've you've heard the the hundred news reports where where there's been some serial killer, and they go interview his neighbor, and it's like, you know, Joe Bob was such a nice man. He brought me flowers, and you know, he took care of my poodle, and and you know, they 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 can't accept that you know people can can literally. Yeah, I mean, it is it is a diagnosis for God's sake. Um, I don't know if it's okay anymore to call it schizophrenia or whatever, but um, you know that is that is an actual fact. And and even those that that don't have pathological, you know, mental disease, um, 
there are people that can live a dual life. So, so it's funny that you say conventional wisdom of, of those that actually worked with the guy, they will not, I have, I have talked to many of them and I don't, I don't like go interview them and like, Hey, what do you think of Bruce Ivins? You know, but, um, I have heard them talk about it and they cannot accept, they cannot let themselves accept that they were working alongside this, this sicko, but you, you probably know that he eventually killed himself and right. everybody believes that, um, no suicide note. Yeah. You know, but everybody believes that uh, he um, felt uh, the walls closing in on him. And, you know, those those that just feel they have to apologize for him somehow will say, oh, you know, he was being badgered and um, and, and he felt threatened. And I don't think so, man. I never met the guy, but, but. He worked at CDC, right? No, no, no. That was He was at USAMRIT. Okay. Yeah, he, he was at USAMRIT, and there, there again, you know, CDC was was never involved in in offensive biological weapons development. Um, but but USAMRIT, prior to the uh, the U.S. signing the the BW Convention in 1973, USAMRIT was where we we developed um, offensive biological weapons, including anthrax. I mean, the the, the techniques that were used by someone um, to carry out those attacks were developed at USAMRID. And then, by the way, copied by the Russians, copied by the Chinese, almost certainly copied by the North Koreans. Hence, our need to do defensive bioweapons work now continuously at Fort Detrick. And, you know, that's one of my jobs when, when I was at Detrick. I, I, um, I worked on anthrax a little bit, um, mostly peripherally, but I worked on um, three other diseases that thankfully nobody's ever heard of. Um, but that we played around with, and then the Russians played around with, um, developing them as as bio threats that could be, you know, put in misters or or whatever. How how far away are we from something like that? Actually, like, are we just like like all these the the, the movies and all the like this kind of like paranoia or like this hysteria that they that they depict in these movies? Is that real? Could that really happen? Like in the course of like three weeks, like a billion people die. So there's nothing, you know, aside from smallpox, um, there, there's, there's no agent, not even Ebola. There's, there's nothing that is simultaneously um, transmissible and uh, has, a, has that kind of case fatality ratio. The, the only thing is smallpox. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's, why, that's why we have this organization, DITRA, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. That's how it started, by the way. I mean, there were, there were two things. It was, it was nuked, it was, but it was both Kazakhstan. When, when the Soviet Union broke up um, in, in Kazakhstan, there were loose nukes and there were literally cans like, like, you know, Campbell's soup cans full of anthrax. And, you know, that's, that's why we created um, DITRA. Uh, but so if, if, there's, if there's smallpox out there, yes, that is possible. That is absolutely possible. But, but all the other agents like, you know, Ebola, um, you know, there's just nothing else that, that is that's just going to, you know, kill an entire population. But, you know, the devastation, you remember back in 2015, 14, um, we had a nurse that was working in West Africa and um, she went back to Dallas or somewhere. And, um, and somebody measured the, uh, the economic impact of that. And it was in the billions of dollars. So, you know, you don't have to have, um, you know, a million people die or even a thousand people die. 
you just have to have complete freak out paranoia. And all it takes is, is, you know, one Ebola case that's actually isolated and not exposing anybody else. And the economic impact is massive. And we're, I, I don't know, I don't know if these, you know, if the terminology of this kind of stuff is widely um, used, um, but, but we refer to this as, as global health security. So, you know, DITRA kind of morphed into this um, concept that, that actually ex- extended ultimately beyond, um, beyond DOD. And um, it became a substantially funded effort, and, and we refer to it as global health security. So there doesn't have to be a direct, you know, connection necessary. But you know, it is a fact that, and, and that is one of the reasons that that we're here. That is one of the reasons that CDC put so much effort into um, managing the Ebola outbreak uh, in DRC. It, it's, it's a little thinner, quite honestly, in regard to HIV. But fundamentally, you, you can put everything that we do in infectious disease to include the DOD overseas labs and all of that under global health security and, you know, it's, it's stability. Because, yes, um, the, um, you know, biologically, technologically, um, all that is possible. The interesting thing that, that I've come to, come to realize um, in, in, this, in this work is that um, – there, there is a deep revulsion for for the idea of of biological weapons. Then, um, few, you know, at, at the risk of um, divulging more than it's probably okay to divulge, um, there just there just does not seem to be the will. Um, there is the means. There's absolutely the means. But somehow, even among the most detestable organizations that we um, we have encountered, there there does not seem to be the will. Thank God. Mm. That's a scary thought. Scary thought. I mean, there's some crazy people in the world. Just got to keep uh, these kind of instruments out of their hands. So as much as possible. Um, I, I think we need, you know, we, we've got to talk about mitigation. We, we've got to, you, you, you remember, I mean, we're all old enough to remember Star Wars and um, the, you know, the, the, the notion that, that we could create a, a shield and, you know, protect ourselves from anything bad that could, could ever happen. And um, that, that's not possible in biological weapons. So, um or, or natural infectious disease, for that matter. So it's, it's the efforts have really just got to focus on on response and mitigation. And and also, you know, a uh, a clear sort of um, reactionary strategy to 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 be safe. I want to just make sure people can hear you, Sam, because I got a confusing message here. First, they said loud and clear. Then they said um, couldn't hear you. So I want to see if people hear you. We just uh, we're just getting this thing fired back up. I'm a pretty fast typist if if it comes to that. Yeah. He can hear. As Sam says, you can hear Sam. Okay, good. So they can hear you. That's that's good. We're oh, back yeah. up. So I'll cut some of this cut some of this down when I do the um Podbean uh podcast. But speaking of the podcast, have you listened to the other podcasts? Have you have you heard some oh, yeah. your Ken Mensch? So awesome. Yeah. You know, uh first first of all for um for for all posterity, um uh, you know, I have reached clearly the pinnacle of, um, you know, the, the dream that all 13-year-old kids have 
you know, to be on the Jamie Schleck show. <laughs> oh, please. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. I, I don't know where I'm going to go from here. Um, but, but in all seriousness, um, thanks for what you do. Um, uh, I understand that in, in large part, you know, this, this is, this is about encouraging giving and I'll, I'll, I'll do that right here and now. Um, I'm going to give my, you know, um, ties to, uh, to West Point this year. Um, it, it is, I, I think, you know, usually, usually once a day, I, I reflect on, um, what that institution has, has meant to me. And I, I want it there and I want it better for, for future generations. We, we need it so much. We, we need the, the attitudes, the values, um, the, 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 the training, I don't know, the approach, the, the methodology that, that just gets into you from, from that experience. We need it out here in government. We need it in the whole world. Well, you know, it's fascinating too. Last couple of podcasts we've had, you know, we had uh, three active duty army officers, you know, Mark Beeger, Kenny Mintz and uh, Scotty Halstead, all of whom had, you know, direct connections like to West Point, either on faculty, staff and faculty or Kenny Mintz, you know, took this uh, army mentorship program so seriously. And, um, you know, it's evolving. Like West Point's got to evolve to be able to train our officers of tomorrow and, and also take the, you know, the current inflow of, society and be able to work with it. And that's one of the reasons why the Cyber Institute is such an important part of the next generation leaders, because it's not just like a cyber class or cyber specific sort of department. It's infusing cyber, uh, you know, cyber competency and, um, and acknowledgement of the threats throughout all of the disciplines at West Point, you know, basically, you know, and, and, uh, and what our class gift is all about is endowing this chair who's going to be, you know, a senior retired military officer that can kind of bridge the divide between, you know, the active duty component and the commercial sector and, and government as well. And, and, uh, and not be as restricted in terms of his ability or her ability to, you know, affect policy and, and do some fundraising and all that kind of stuff. So that's the importance of, the, of our, of our class gift is it's really, it's, it's very much about looking down range at the future threats and saying, where is the where is the biggest impact we can have as a class? What can we direct our collective resources towards? And that's it. So, you know, just as you talk about like, you know, future threats and being able to have um, uh, competency in terms of, you know, looking at what's what's coming up over the horizon at us. Uh, that's what our class gift is all about, you know, so. So that's that. There's the purpose of the podcast again is to continue to foster relationships among our classmates. It's to raise awareness around that class gift. It's to remember our fallen classmates uh, where, where where we can. It's to lift each other up and to celebrate each other's successes. And so that's what this is all about. And Sam, you know, you and I talked a, a lot about the effect that West Point has had on your life. You said every day you think about it. Like, where are some of those kind of trials you've had in your life where you've kind of harkened back to lessons learned at West Point in the Army or you know, and, and what memories do you have that stay with you with about West Point? Yeah, I, I would say really, you know, I, my, 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 my life, I've never been under, I mean, I've been, I've been in Baghdad and Kandahar and, you know, heard, um, explosions and, and gunfire is the closest to, um, you know, um, you know, mortal, mortal threat. So, you know, it, it's, it's nothing like that. It's not like, you know, I, 
I got I got to pick myself up off the ground and 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 get back in the fight. I never had anything like that. But what what I do experience and continue to experience and um, in in this job experience all the time is the um, the, the the sense of um, just what do I do here? And uh, I think West Point gives you the answer to that. Um, and the and the whole world, you know, the business world, the government world needs that. And and the the answer is you start where you are, and you start asking questions, and you start figuring out the root cause is is kind of the the, the issue for for my line of work by directly observing it yourself. That that's probably the single biggest lesson. I I, I think about I reflect on you know things like the um, what do we call it? PLL or whatever, you know, the, the, the stuff that you have in the back of your Humvee and, you know, the, you, you got the, the, you know, the staff sergeant or whatever, that's a great guy. And you ask him, you know, do you have your fire extinguisher? And, and he, and he says, yes. And, and then, and then, you know, what, what you say after that is not, okay, great. No, you say, show me. And, and that, that, that is not common. That is not common anywhere in the world where, where a leader, um, it just it's just normal it's just part of the process of, of figuring something out to go and directly observe uh and, and that's that's what makes that's what makes me successful in 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 what i do you, you just you have that process of I, I i need to go figure it out myself i'm gonna go find out i'm not gonna ask you know through three chains of of um you know subordinates or whatever to um to go find that out and give me information I see what happens when, when, when you trust that, you know, it's the game of telephone and everybody's got an agenda of, of what they want, what they think you want to hear. Uh, so, so that's been an extremely valuable lesson for me to, that I've just applied, you know, just a hundred times to, you know, we're, we're all just problem solvers. We're, we're all just, you don't have to be an intellectual, um, but, but somehow this is not a common approach to, to leadership or management, that, that just simple process of, of getting your own information, not trusting, not, be, not because you don't trust the person, but, but just because you know the importance of, of seeing with your own eyes um, what the real facts are. You know, I think about that a lot, too. I, I think I drive people crazy sometimes when I when I do a deep dive and I drill down into a lot of details on something like if we go to this level of detail and everything, we're never going to get anything done. And, and, you know, I say, well, I'm not going to do it on everything. I just want to do it on this one thing to understand it. And then we can sort of like scope back up and, you know, you can understand what the intent is here. And, um, and, and so I think that's one technique. The other thing is back briefing. I love back briefing. I like learn that at West Point. Like, tell me what you heard. Like, and I often say to people, let me back brief you on what I think I heard you say. Um, and so that's so, that's such an important way to sort of like, uh, you know, sort of tease out where there, where these differences are. It's so interesting that you say that. I, so, so, you know, here in Zambia, what we're trying to do, you know, we, we know, everybody knows the, the, the methods that, that you would need to, to, you know, for, for my job, stop HIV transmission, right? But we're, we're trying to get everybody to apply that. And, and so you, you go out to the sites and, and you have, you know, programs and SOPs and, uh, you know, methodology, and you're trying to find out if, if people are applying that methodology. And I asked one of my colleagues specifically that, you know, 
what what if I ask, um, you know, Dr. So-and-so, here, here you call it the in-charge, the, the senior person in the hospital or clinic or whatever they call it, the in-charge. What if I ask the in-charge to um, repeat back what I just said? And um, the response was, oh, my God, do not ever do that. That would be such an insult. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I had to figure out a, a way to get back briefed without saying, hey, tell me what I just said. Uh, but, but still, those, those, those concepts, I don't know if they're Army concepts or West Point concepts, but I gained them from West Point. And, and they're, they're in there, and I've used them all through my you know, infectious disease research surveillance. I, I was a professor for a while at, at Purdue and I applied those concepts there. And they're, they're unusual. They're not a common set of principles, but that's, that's where I got them. So I want to ask you some more. You, you mentioned that your TAC officer was very influential on you, that, that like just was yeah. just a real sort of quality influence. And, and um, what are some of the other, so, so tell me about that and tell me also about other relationships, maybe with classmates or other, um, stimulus you had at West Point that still that still stays with you today. Sure. Yeah. So Frank Kearney um, was his name. He was our TAC in F three. I think I think the first three years. Yeah. First two or three years. And you know this this guy was just just the classic. I mean he was he could have been Arnold Schwarzenegger if he had wanted to you know take that many drugs to you know build his body. It was it was a massive. Um, you know, picture of a Norse god, and yet you know the the guy um, could could appreciate uh, you know things things that are not necessarily associated with masculinity. And I just looked at that and, and just found that so impressive. Um, he he was clear and um, straightforward in in his interactions with you. Obviously, didn't pull any punches when when you know. Some was not right. Um, so you, you, you see the movie image of, of the barking, yelling, you know, tough, um, mean uh, drill sergeant, you know, company commander or whatever. And, and he obviously could have been that, but he didn't need to be that. He was, he was soft-spoken and just smart. I just, I just love that guy. Um, another one, and, you know, West Point, coming out of the, you know, pure white, uh, rural Indiana, where I had you know no classmates of, of color, um, and no um, no no nobody saying that that you know maybe this philosophy or that uh, way of doing things or thinking about things um, could have some room for improvement. <laughs> one was so so one great experience for me was was the diversity. Um, of our classmates and our, and our uh, instructors. Um, and the diversity for me extends to, uh, I can't remember what she taught, like um, sociology or some something, but we had some Berkeley professor, uh, you know, Berkeley, yeah, she was a Berkeley professor and she was a reservist or something. Captain Dem uh, and, Demchek. Captain Demchek, yeah, I had her too. She was crazy. She was she was not so, but you know, the, the fact that she was up there in front of me, you know, making me think about stuff. Yeah. I think we were in the that same class. 
We may have had the same class. Did she like, she like, I remember she was playing music, like um, 60s music, like, and she like had yeah. this whole, she like dressed up as a hippie and was like walking us through yeah. the 60s, yeah. like yeah. what happened. Yeah. yeah, that was pretty, that was pretty. That was a big event in my life. And then I remember um, we had this, I'm, I'm sure we had this same professor too. I can't think of his name, but um, he was, he was SF. He was teaching electrical engineering and he was, he was some sort of, you know, pseudo sponsor for me. Like, like I was at his house a few times and, and I remember him playing classical music and wow, that, that is, that is beautiful that, that this guy, cause I mean, he, he was, he was classic SF, um, all the way. Um, I also last, last, you know, big professor impact story. I think it was our economics professor or something along those lines. Um, he showed the movie. Um, the hell was that movie? It was from the sixties. It was about, um, yeah. Nuclear war. Yeah. You know, it was, it was Admiral Stanfield Turner. It was, uh, he was the, he, he was the, the guest professor and yeah, this was a social, um, social, we, you know, we had the same class, I think, because Dr. 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 Strange love. Yeah. 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 You know, so, you know, and, and, and he, and he showed it to, to, to illustrate the, the basic concept of mutual assured destruction, right? Right. But, but it was that, that experience for me, this 19-year-old kid from, from, you know, a farm in Indiana, seeing that movie was, was life-changing. So, you know, all those experiences. But anyway, on, on classmates, I mean, we had an extremely close class, F3. I was very happy personally that we never um, scrambled um, – we, we were, we were, I, I, at West Point, I kind of didn't know that many people outside of our, our company because, um, almost my whole social experiences, uh, social experiences was with them. Um, we had Otto Leone was, was my roommate, Ben Greiner, um, a very key person. And, you know, my influences, BG, Charlie Costanza, you know, he was one of those guys that, that, you know, came in there and, and, and you knew he was a real leader. Yeah, he was, uh, I, I remember Charlie, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people, one of the, one of the most prominent memories of him um, at, at graduation, he had a, you know, basically his, his face was about half, you know, scrape and contusion. Um, he did a, as I understand it, I was not there. I'll, I'll clarify that. But as I understand it, he did a complete drunk face plant down um most of the steps uh from the uh from that parking lot nice up there but but everybody knew you know he he was he was gonna um go far he was a real leader and uh have have many of those rich rich navarro um you know another guy that you 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 think could go either way and uh you know end up just carrying a surfboard on the beach but um i i think i think he may still be on active duty as an SF officer. Um, Kim Ashton, uh, I, I think retired and is now some kind of SES or something, um, in some very senior role at the national guard. I have so many, uh, close classmates, um, got to know a few of them better, um, after the fact and, and partly through our reunion. Um, Brad McElwee is, is, I, I think he's like our, our main social organizer now. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. 
and uh, he, he came down to, to Indianapolis while while we were there and went to the Indy 500 with me. Um, I did partner with him. He was, he's he's such a great guy. Yeah. So I have a request. Uh, somebody wants to know about the white rabbit. What that means? The white rabbit. <laughs> I don't want to know about that. Uh, so you know, I was a drunk idiot kid, um, and uh, I was on brigade staff. And uh, you know, every opportunity I had, I would um, you know overindulge down at the first club or what? What did we call that other thing? It was there. There was some other. That, that other sort of bar thing, I would go there all the time and come back, you know, stumbling drunk. And Scott Clemenson, I do not know why, uh, but, but for some reason he found it humorous uh, to, to get me dancing to that Jefferson Airplane song, White Rabbit. Uh, and, you know, un, under the circumstances of, you know, the influence of alcohol, I would, I would tend to um, humor that. And I am told that he even has photographs. I think nice. that was before, you know, easy ability to, to video. So I'm hoping there's no video of that. There's got to be some crazy. Yeah, there's got to be some crazy videos today. I, I, I mean, probably good and bad. Yeah, I mean, I, and so you know, that's 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 part of my my experience is, um, um, yeah, I, I, alcohol has been a, a serious problem for me um, through my life. And, and it could have been, um, you know, could have been the, could have been the end many, many times. And, uh, you know, the army part, partly the fear of course, of the repercussions, but, but that's all you got, uh, keeping you from, from, you know, going too far, uh, fine. And, and so, you know, the army, you know, the army, unfortunately to, to a great extent, uh, promotes overindulgence, but, but, for my army experience and my West Point experience, um, it, uh, you know, the, the constraints and people that, um, you know, just, they, they sure didn't have to, but <laughs> went out of their way on, on so many occasions to, to keep me out of trouble. And I mean, potential for real, real trouble. So, so Scott, Scott would, uh, often, um, basically help me back from wherever I was, and was he your roommate um, on brigade staff? He's your roommate. I'm... Scott was Scott was my roommate. Uh, yeah, I think it was the whole year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were we were we were whole year brigade staff. He was the activities officer, whatever that means. Captain Fun, um, you know, Captain was... Fun. Yeah. So, uh, Sam... Scott, I, I, if, if you're actually listening, miss you. Yeah, he's listening. He's listening. So. So Sam, we're getting to the end of our time here. And so I, um, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm so grateful for, you know, your friendship, you're continuing to lead the way, representing our class there in, in Africa, doing great things to help our world and, and also help our national interest. And, and, you know, you're just an, you're an amazing person. You've always been that. And, uh, you know, what a leader, what a leader in our class, um, you know, wh what kind of parting thoughts or, you know, final, um, uh, perspectives do you want to leave with our class? Well, I'll say thanks for that and, and reiterate that I, I do not deserve that. And I'm not trying to play some sort of, there's, there's, there's some kind of, you know, hip term for this, you know, um, what are the, anyway, I can't think of the, the term. I'm not, I'm not trying to play, you know, humility. Um, but, 
I don't deserve that at all. Um, it's, it's been the institution, um, one point in the army. Um, it's, it's been, uh, the, the, the friends and the influences of, of that, that, that have allowed the, the rich life I've had and have. Um, I, I, the only thing I do is, is just try to be useful. And, and that's a lesson from, from West Point, wherever I end up. I, I've never tried to, um, you know, put myself on some sort of career path or aim for really any objective at all. Just, just wherever I am, I just try to be useful. And I have found, and I, this, this may sound proud or self-congratulatory, but um, that, has, that has always been the case. But, but that attitude, that, um, you know, and the preparation to be able to do that. Uh, comes comes from this institution that, that I just it's just pure luck that I that I found myself there and I wish that for others. Well, I feel the same. I feel very lucky. Pure luck that be connected to people like you and other people in our class. Um, what a great what a great blessing for all of us. Stick around after the the credits run, roll out here. I'm gonna I'm gonna play out our our, uh, our 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 music in the end here. Well, yeah, and we gotta say beat Navy. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. Beat Navy. I feel like I didn't do a good enough job saying beat Navy. I mean, how could I? This is Army Navy week, right? Beat Navy. And we're still yeah. live here. I'm going to say this. I, I, oh, of course, beat Navy. It's a big week. Army Navy. And by the way, we're yeah. underdogs again. So it's a big week. So yeah, I'm so, hoping so to see a lot of classmates. Shall be done old grad podcast. Please check back on this Facebook page for information about featured guests and upcoming episodes of the Duty Shall Be Done Old Grad Podcast.